Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live, your home for navigating the road to passing the architect registration exam. I'm Mark Tier, uh, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today I'm with Mr. Mike Newman, who is going to discuss um, our mock exam for the programming, planning, and practice exam. Um, the questions that Mike is going to review will help you uh, help give you a strategy for how to study for this exam because it's a unique one, um, and then you'll also get um, a good idea of some of the terms that you're going to see in this exam. Uh, but before we get started, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, uh, visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. Um, and during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike. Uh, now, if you don't know Mike, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's the instructor for Black Spectacles online uh, AIA ARE prep curriculum which if you haven't already checked out our AIA ARE prep curriculum, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials from the courses. Um, and today we have two very special uh, Black Spectacles promo codes to share. So make sure uh, you stick around until the end of today's episode. But first, let's hand it over to Mike. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Mark. Uh, today we have a mini mock exam on programming, planning, and practice. There'll be 10 quick questions that, while not exhaustive, uh, should give you a pretty good sense of the types of topics you'll find on the PPP exam. One thing to note, there's a lot of overlap between uh, PPP and some of the other exam topics. You'll notice that some of these questions could easily find themselves on other exams. So one suggestion that I have for you is to consider studying and taking this exam with uh, two other exams, the CDNS, the Construction Documents and Services exam, and the Site Planning exam. You'll find that they are all about kind of the same set of issues. They just look at them from different vantage points. So uh, those are the two obvious ones to do them with, PPP, CDNS, and site planning. Uh, but there's even going to be some overlap with some of the other topics. But in general, uh, kind of taking those three, thinking of them together, taking some time together when you're doing them, instead of doing them like in silos, kind of think of them all as one, one thought. But then when you're taking those exams, you have to kind of remember that they come at it from a different aspect. So uh, CDNS will be more about the contractual relationships. PPP will be more about kind of practice management. Uh, uh, site planning will be more about the physicality of the site. But they're all going to be sort of similar uh, topics that, uh, that will kind of run together. So really good ones to, to kind of consider together and to take together. OK, with that as a little intro, uh, why don't we just dive right in? So we're going to do uh, 10, 10 questions, and let's take a look at the first one. Uh, so the first one I have is, at the beginning of a project, what should the owner give the architect to start the project off? So this is an interesting question that you'll see uh, in various places. I'll talk about this basic question in a, in a lot of different spots. Uh, and the reason for that is, is because it touches on a whole series of different issues. So the first one that I would, would mention is it starts talking about contracts, right? So, okay, uh, there's clearly a sort of contractual elements that are going to be in the answer to this. Uh, the second thing it starts talking about is practice management. Uh, so it's referring to kind of how you move through a project and whose roles are what and, and what are the sort of the main ways that people start to think about these things. Uh, a third thing that starts to be evident in this one is schedules. Uh, what comes first? What comes second? What comes third? Uh, you start seeing a whole series of different issues 
that are all PPP related, programming planning and practice related. Uh, as, as I said, they're also site planning related and um, uh, construction documents services related, but they're all kind of part of this milieu that you kind of have to understand to be able to really kick off a project. So let's try to answer the question. Uh, I have three possible spaces here. Uh, there's probably six or seven different possible reasonable answers you could put in those three slots. Uh, but there's a couple of key ones that should definitely be uh, the first ones you think about. So the first one is gonna be not terribly surprising. Uh, first one I would say is a contract. So if, uh, if you're gonna start a project off and you don't have a contract, uh, and people do this all the time, especially young architects, but all architects. I've done it a bunch of times, and it's a terrible idea. You should never work without a contract. Uh, and there's a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, the basic reason for it is that uh, people generally think of the contracts as, this is a, the tool I'm going to use to get myself out of legal trouble down the road. And to be perfectly honest about it, uh, if you're in such legal trouble, uh, some sort of... Um, problem that's gone to a court, uh, if things have gotten that bad, uh, the contract probably isn't really going to save you. Uh, the, you know, you're kind of uh, screwed as an architect often in these situations because the fees are not so big that uh, you can spend tens of thousands, you know, uh, 20, 30,000, 40,000 dollars in order, uh, in, in lawyer's fees, in order to get your fees back when you didn't get paid. Um, so the, the people think of it as being about uh, being uh, the contracts being about um, legal troubles, but in fact, the main thing that they are really useful for is just making sure that everybody who's starting off the project understands their roles, knows what's being expected of them, uh, understands sort of controls expectations for what kinds of uh, uh, work is going to get produced, and so it's absolutely the uh, fundamental beginning of the project. First thing that, that uh, the owner should be handing to you is a signed contract. Uh, and that presumably is uh, an AIAB 101, which would be the owner architect agreement, but it could be the 104 or the 107 or whatever, depending on the scale of the project. But that's absolutely going to be sort of a first uh, draft of what should start something off. And then you start thinking about it. It's like, okay, you're going to sign this contract and you're signing contracts, you're coming up with a fee, you're doing all of that. How did you base that? Like, what did you base it on? There's got to be something that you already know about this as a project in order to be able to reasonably sign and negotiate a contract. And what that's going to mean is the program. So the program uh, is that document that talks about square footages. It talks about uh, all the things that the owner needs and uh, the sort of the, the goals of what they want to get out of it. All of that kind of stuff. And it makes logical sense. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't say to somebody, "Yes, I'll, uh, I'll build you that beautiful school without, and you know, it'll cost this much in architectural fees," without having some sense of it. Well, is it a big school? Is it a small school? Like that's what the program is going to tell you, kind of what the goals of that project are. So those are the first two that would absolutely be part of it. And program is kind of funny because architects generally think that uh, they should be able to write the program. And in often case, oftentimes they do write the program, but it is not part of your basic contract. If you really want to write the program uh, for whatever project it is, you should get that as either an additional service to a B101, or even more likely, uh, you should do it as a separate contract before you start the B101. And then you're essentially handing that program back to the owner. 
the owner is then handing the program back to you when you start the B101. So those are the first two that I would definitely uh, start with. And then the next one is, I'm gonna sort of write kind of vaguely the site. Uh, so what I mean by that is the owner gives you the site. That means they should be able to uh, hand you a survey. Uh, they should be able to hand you some geotech information. So soils and that kind of thing. Uh, they should be able to hand you information about environmental concerns. Uh, they should be able to hand you information that goes, you know, anything like that that's about the site uh, that you would need to kick off to start off a process. Uh, I remember many years ago uh, talking to, I was working with, a, we were the green consultants for, lead consultants for uh, another architect, and uh, he was telling us a story about how he was working with a client and uh, the client said, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know any surveyors, can you just uh, call a surveyor for me? And uh, he said, well, you know, I'm not really supposed to do that. You're supposed to supply the survey. And he said, well, you know, I don't know anybody. Can you just say, you know, so he ended up sending him a list of uh, contact informations for surveyors. The owner contacted the surveyor themselves. And then many months later, when all hell broke loose and the contracts went bad, uh, it actually came down and he was uh, being held liable for the surveyor, even though he hadn't even called him. He had just given the phone number over for a surveyor. So this is, it's, it's not, it's very untypical for it to actually become a problem, but it's one of those things. There are reasons why people do these things in this way. So contract, program, and then site. All right, so we have um, a couple of answers here from, um, from Brendan, Spencer, Tatiana, Matthew. And one of the things that uh, many of them had programmed, many of them also noted, um, uh, site-related things, but budget was a really common one that they thought. So budget uh, absolutely is a good one. Uh, that, that's another one that I would say. I, budget actually falls under program. Uh, so um, the scale of the project, how much money they have to spend, all of that stuff would be part of, uh, part of the program. I could imagine separating it out as well, but that would definitely be part of the program. And then uh, uh, kind of related to the contract and all of that, the other one that I always say, uh, because it implies seriousness, is a retainer. Uh, there's nothing like having somebody hand you a check for even if it's $400 or something like that. It doesn't have to be a lot of money, but uh, there's something about that that just says, I'm serious, we're all serious, let's, let's do a project together. Uh, that wouldn't be probably an answer that would show up on the exam. That's just a little aside. Uh, all right, let's try the next one. Okay, question number two. During the demo phases of a construction of an adaptive reuse project, you are walking the site and notice what you assume to be asbestos tile. Uh, so adaptive reuse, we're talking about something where it's an existing building that had one use, it's now gonna become something else, like it's an old loft building becoming a residential lofts or uh, something along those lines. Um, and adaptive reuse projects have a tendency to have a little bit of a different schedule, a little bit of a different timeline to them because there's often just stuff you don't, just don't know about the building until you start doing the demo. So uh, some construction often happens early in order to figure out what the heck is going on. So it's quite plausible that you might be walking through uh, after you've done a series of design drawings or even construction documents, uh, but still find new pieces of information, new structural situations that were covered up before, new environmental issues like this question is asking. Um, so that's what this is about. 
Let's look at some of the answers. So the question is, you've come across this asbestos tile, you should, A, immediately stop the work on the site uh, to allow the dangerous materials to be removed appropriately. Well, removed appropriately sounds interesting. How about B, immediately tell the general contractor to stop the work on the site so that they can remove the material appropriately. So that's similar, but talking about doing it through the general contractor. Uh, C, have the material encapsulated in place, show the material to the owner and suggest that they should have an environmental review. So let's look at A and B first. Those both sounded kind of interesting uh, because they talk about removing the material appropriately. Um, but there's something here that you should absolutely be nervous about. Uh, as soon as you see that you are, being, you are saying that I am going to stop the work, uh, I'm immediately gonna tell the general contractor to stop the work. Uh, when you see that on one of these exams, as soon as you see the, any situation where the architect is uh, controlling the schedule in any way during the construction process, you know immediately that there's something fishy, there's something wrong there. Um, the architect's role is the design intent and to be the agent for the owner. They're not always the agent for the owner. There's certain topics that's not sort of their purview, but they're generally an agent for the owner and their role is to provide the design intent. Uh, schedules, means and methods, sequencing of, of subcontractors, all of that goes to the general contractor. Now, we're talking about design, bid, build here. This is the sort of standard way where you have an owner that has a uh, contract with an architect and, you, and they also have a contract, uh, presumably an A101, with the contractor, the GC. There are other types of relationships. It could be design, build, it could be uh, construction managers, a whole bunch of other possibilities. But if it doesn't say a different possibility, you should always assume that it's design, bid, build, kind of the standard triumvirate of how these things go. Uh, so, uh, like I said, you look at A and B, they both have this idea that, okay, this architect is gonna walk on the site and just tell people, wait, stop, stop the work. You have no idea about what's going on with the schedule. It's not your role. You sh there's no reason why you would have uh, full knowledge of all the different things going on on the site. There might be penalties if the contractor comes in late. There might be uh, issues of timing with other workloads. So there's a whole series of reasons why you just should not ever do that. It's just not your role, it's not appropriate, and you start taking on liability about schedule, which can be actually pretty significantly uh, in the financial uh, range. So A and B are definitely out. Uh, you're definitely not telling anybody to stop the work. So let's look at C. C has kind of an interesting thing to it. So have the material encapsulated in place. So if you imagine that I have uh, this tile that's sitting there on some mastic uh, and that's sitting on top of uh, some uh, concrete. Sorry, my concrete's terrible, uh, but you get the idea. Uh, and this stuff is starting to fall apart. Um, the way they talk about it with asbestos is it's friable, which means that it, it breaks apart and the little uh, uh, kind of fibrous elements get out and up into the air. And that's what you're really worried about. You don't, um, asbestos is, uh, the, the way it's dangerous is that it actually gets into the air and then gets into your lungs uh, and it uh, can build up in your lungs. Your, your body can't get rid of it and so it builds up in your lungs. So the bad part is that it, it becomes friable, it becomes sort of loose into the air. And often people think, well, it's asbestos, we should get rid of it immediately. But what's usually the best thing, not always, but often the best thing is to uh, what they call encapsulate it. So I'm just putting a uh, new layer of flooring, in this case, because it's a tile floor, 
uh, right across the, the top of it. I'm just covering it over with something brand new. The asbestos, let's say it wasn't tile, let's say it was a pipe wrap or something like that. Well, I would just take a new pipe wrap and I would wrap it all right around it and encapsulate it in place. Uh, this is often the smartest thing to do. It's often the best way to go. Uh, by sheer fact that doing demo on it is likely to make it more friable and put it more out into the air. However, similar to A and B, if you look at C from a sort of abstracted standpoint, step back a little bit, C says, have the material encapsulated in place. That's an awful lot like saying, stop the work, right? You're just unilaterally standing on the site and saying, you, you there, encapsulate that material. You're like, is that really your job during the kind of construction walkthrough to change the scope on the fly unilaterally? Uh, and the answer is clearly no. Um, that it, there may be all kinds of other reasons. There may be, it may not be asbestos. Why spend the money if you don't need to? And uh, it may be, there's a whole series of other possibilities of what could be going on or, or other things that it might be tied into. So clearly the correct answer on two is D. And that is show the material to the owner. Remember, you're the agent of the owner. Uh, your role in this kind of situation is to bring the owner up to speed of anything that you think is uh, important for them uh, to, to understand, and then let the owner uh, either get a phase one, or if they've already done a phase one, do a phase two. Uh, those are different terms for environmental reviews. Uh, you'll hear phase one is this kind of a general review that uh, looks at kind of the history of the building, uh, what, what's, what's around, what other kinds of uh, documentation is around from the city, from, from other uh, projects next door, that kind of thing. Phase two is when it starts getting more serious, you start getting into actual uh, measuring and, and testing materials and all of that. Um, something like asbestos tile would be a relatively uh, simple thing, but you would absolutely uh, want to hand that over to the owner to let them do that. Looks like everybody got, uh, got that one right, so. Awesome. Let's look at number three. Okay, number three. During design development, the architect should use which of the following systems for producing a, uh, a pricing estimate or opinion? So first of all, let me just say, um, I've always found the, the, the term uh, pricing opinion to sound kind of, uh, I don't know, wishy-washy or something. It feels like you're trying to get out of something um, as opposed to saying a pricing estimate. But I have to say, it's actually a pretty good word for it. Um, so you'll often see people, instead of saying estimate, they'll call it an opinion. And it really does actually make some sense because uh, calling something an estimate in the early phases of a project is kind of silly because there's really no way that you could be accurate enough to really call it an, an estimate. You're really talking about an opinion that my guess is that we're going to end up around this number, right? So you'll see both terms being used, opinion and estimate. It depends on the context of the question. Okay, so let's, uh, let's think about this. During design development, the architect should use which of the following systems? So if we think about this sort of uh, in the general way, uh, a process is likely to be uh, some preliminary work, uh, pre-design kind of stuff. And then there's going to be SD, schematic design. There'll be design development, DD. There'll be contract documents, CDs. Uh, and then there's sort of an interesting moment where things kind of get gathered together, uh, and there's the bidding phase. In that bidding phase, the architect actually has quite a few roles. You not only have created the CD set, but you also generally will create the bid set, which includes uh, alternates and uh, kind of the, the way that you get the information back from GCs, uh, who are all the bidders. Um, 
so there's a whole, it's not a, a huge amount of work, but there's quite a bit of work there for the architect, so that takes some, some time. And then there's a moment, again, where things change a bit, uh, and a bidder is chosen, and now you're in, for the architect, CA, Construction Administration. And then after that, you have a sort of post issues, which might be commissioning or something like that. Uh, you don't always have all of these phases. You often don't have any preliminary phases or post phases because if you're not doing lead or something that requires commissioning, uh, there's not usually a reason to, uh, to do that. Um, but you will generally have SD, DD, CD, BID, and CA. Uh, so let's just say for a second we're looking at uh, the SD time, the schematic design time, and we're thinking about pricing opinions at that point. Uh, let's say you uh, told a client after you'd done, uh, you know, let's say uh, 16 hours worth of work, you've done some floor plans, a couple different options, you've done a little massing model, and you've done uh, uh, some uh, elevation ideas uh, and that kind of thing, and now you're presenting a, a, an SD set. And you tell them that along with that presentation, um, I think this is gonna cost uh, $1,432,952. Uh, that's ridiculous. You can't tell them that. It just doesn't make any sense because that's way too specific of a number. And that specificity is actually problematic. You're implying that you know more than you do. If that number ended up being at 1.8 or 1.7 or 2.0 million, uh, there is potential that you could have all kinds of problems uh, coming back at you that were about you not being um, uh, forthright with them when you said this very exact number. What's way more likely for schematic design is that you're going to use a square footage number, right? You're going to say, uh, all right, I think this is going to be roughly uh, $200 uh, per square foot, um, and I'm going to think we think the building is going to be about 7,000 square feet. Uh, all right, that equals uh, roughly. Um, that equals roughly 1.4 million. That's a completely reasonable way to do SD. Uh, schematic design, you're using rounded numbers, you're taking square footages, you're sort of making really big basic assumptions based on who the client is and the work you've done previously. Uh, you know, if you think that, that they have a very expensive taste, maybe it's not gonna be 200, maybe it's 300 or $400 a square foot. Or maybe the, you, you know that they're going to go the cheapest they possibly can, and it's going to be $150 a square foot, or something like that, right? So you, you, it's not just a random number, it's a knowledgeable number, but it's a, a rounded number, right? And you're getting this sort of logical level of uh, estimating for that phase. Well, when we get to DD, when we get to design development, uh, now we've done quite a bit more work. Now we have full wall sections. We have a really clear idea of what the sort of basic uh, systems that we're talking about. You know, are we talking uh, masonry walls? Are we talking stud walls? Or what kind of, is it concrete? Is it steel structure? Is it, uh, you know, wood structure? Um, so by the time you get through DD, you should have a pretty darn good sense of what's going on. Uh, so the way that you're going to do estimating for, at DD is actually through the assemblies system. Uh, so A is the actual answer to this question. And the assemblies is where you can uh, either, they have you know, the means books or they have the online versions, where you say, okay, it's a 7,000 square foot building, and we know that the floor system is gonna be uh, uh, 
open web joists with a steel deck and a concrete topping. Uh, we know that the roof is going to be et cetera, et cetera. We know that the walls are going to be a CMU backup wall with a brick uh, veneer. You can start saying the idea of like big, uh, uh, big groupings of things, big groups of assemblies. So I have a wall assembly that I can use and I can say I have uh, you know, X number, you know, 14,000 linear feet of, uh, of this wall type, right? And I have uh, 3,000 or, or uh, 3,500 uh, square feet of one floor assembly type and then a roof assembly type and then another floor assembly type. And I can take those big groups, get a sort of generalized number for each of those assemblies, and I start to make it a much more detailed uh, um, uh, estimate, opinion, than this first one. The first one was just the 1.4. By the time I'm doing the DD, I have a whole bunch of different assemblies and I'm adding them all together and I eventually get to one big number. And presumably it's pretty close to the 1.4, but uh, you know, it's, it's more detailed. So when we're talking about DD, it's definitely gonna be an assemblies uh, concept. So then the question is, all right, you get to CD. What, what, what sort of uh, pricing estimate do you do for when you're at the end of uh, the uh, contract documents? And uh, the answer to that one is, you don't, the GC does. That's the bid. The bid is just the next uh, 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 pricing opinion. In this case, it becomes an actual estimate. Um, so you do SD, you do it at DD, and then the general contractors do it at the bid. Uh, and that's how we move through that as a process. And the idea is that it gets closer and closer and closer to accurate as you move along. It should never be too far from accurate. It's just uh, as you get more information, the number should get closer and closer and, and uh, will be uh, uh, more and more accurate as you go along. Uh, everybody would love it if the answer was D, where you could just hand over the project uh, to the GC and say, yeah, give me some estimating. And frankly, that's what construction managers are for, which is a totally different kind of contractual relationship where you bring them in early because they're kind of on the team with the owner and that construction manager can then uh, help out with that SD calculation, which should it be 200, should it be $220 a square foot? And they could help out with the assembly's uh, um, takeoff uh, for the design development uh, at the end of that. Uh, so uh, construction managers will do a lot of this stuff, but that's a different kind of contra contractual relationship. Um, and then the unit pricing uh, can mean a couple different things. Um, typically that actually means that's what a GC does. It's, it goes down to the, every, all the units. But sometimes you'll see people will refer to that as unit pricing, like uh, a classroom might be in those SD phase priced by the number of classrooms, or hotels might be priced by the number of beds, something like that. So different versions of unit pricing. Everybody got it right? All right, let's move along. When considering issues of privacy and in an office setting, the architect should be conversant with all right, we have uh, four different answers here. IIC, STC and NRC, NFPA, ASTM. So the first thing to say is ASTM, definitely not that. ASTM is a, is a standard, uh, kind of like UL or something like that, um, where it's not a code, it's uh, a sort of established and recognized reasonable institution that has come up with a whole series of standards so that other people like contractors, architects, code officials, and everybody, when they have conversations with each other, can all know what each other is talking about. So it's a, it's a standard system. So D doesn't have anything to do with privacy. Uh, C is NFPA, that has to do with fire protection. So definitely not C either. Uh, then we have 
A, IIC, and B, STC, and NRC. Um, the IIC is uh, the, what's it, let's see, that's the Im impact insulation class, I believe is what the IIC stands for. So if you imagine that you have a, a floor structure and let's see here, let's see how this works. Okay, there's my uh, leg in a high heel. Uh, and here's the person downstairs. Uh, and <laughs> goofy looking person. Um, uh, and the high heel is walking and what's happening, they're making that impact sound. That sound is traveling through the structure uh, and then it's coming out into the space. The IIC, the impact insulation class, is a way of defining how much sound is making it through. Every different type of floor assembly, like a concrete floor, will be different than a, a steel, uh, steel structure floor, than a wood floor. Uh, they'll all have different uh, ways that the sound travel, the impact sounds travel through the structure. And while that's uh, important and meaningful, it doesn't really have anything to do with privacy. So, okay, uh, the obvious answer here then is B, STC, and NRC. So let's talk about those for just a quick sec. So STC ratings, um, if I have a wall and I've got somebody on this side of that wall and they're talking on a phone. I know nobody talks on phones anymore, but um, maybe uh, they're texting, but it's loud. Uh, no, they're talking on a phone. And so they're having a private conversation on that phone and they're talking and it goes into the wall. Um, the T of STC is the sound transmission class. And so what that's talking about for this wall assembly is the sound transmitting, sound transmission class, sound, the sound transmitting through the wall, right? So I have somebody over here who is potentially listening in to this phone call on the other side of a wall. If I have a, a high STC rating, then I'm gonna have much uh, less sound going through that wall. If I have a low STC rating on that assembly, we have a lot more sound going through that wall. So this is uh, definitely an issue of privacy, uh, would show up very often in uh, apartment units, in uh, housing, but especially in things like uh, office spaces um, that, you know, like the conference room or the HR person might have to have a very high STC rating because they're talking about very private things in those offices or a lawyer's office. Uh, so STC ratings, absolutely part of privacy uh, and uh, would definitely be a sort of a topic of discussion that you could imagine uh, on this particular exam. And then the NRC, so let's think, let's think about the NRC for a second. Um, NRC is the noise reduction uh, coefficient. I always get class and coefficient mixed up, so uh, you should always check, make sure I got it right. Um, uh, and in that situation, where let's say I've got somebody sitting here and they're uh, sitting at a table or uh, at their desk and they're also talking on the phone and they're having this loud conversation that's going up and it's bouncing off the ceiling. So if we imagine that that ceiling, let's say it's made of glass, very hard, flat surface. Well, that's going to bounce that information, that all that sound directly to that other person. So they're gonna get a really clear, uh, they're gonna hear every aspect of that conversation. But if I have a ceiling that has a very high uh, NRC rating, um, and so that would be why you often see these 
kind of speckled looking uh, ceiling tiles, is that they are specifically formulated for this issue, that instead of getting that direct, simple bounce, I'm gonna get a much more diffuse bounce. And some of that sound is gonna get absorbed into that material. And some of that sound is gonna bounce, uh, oops, uh, is going to bounce back over this way, but some will bounce back over this way and some will bounce. In other words, it breaks it all up. So I don't get that clarity uh, that I would get with that really hard surface. Even a drywall ceiling will have a much harder surface than, uh, than a, a typical uh, drop ceiling. So uh, the NRC is talking about how the sound bounces around in the space and that can absolutely uh, uh, have impact on privacy, especially in an office setting. So that was probably pretty easy, but I think it's good to kind of put in your head the idea of uh, STC is about transmission, uh, moving from one side to another. NRC is about the quality of the sound within the space and that idea of the direct line of, uh, of bouncing sound. Looks like everybody got that one right. Um, we did have one comment going back. Andre noted that talking about um, pricing, he said uh, in his firm they've hired an estimator during uh, the construction documents phases where they use unit you know, pricing based on your specs and plans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is uh, a really smart thing to do um, and uh, highly recommended. Um, and in fact, in some countries, in, uh, in the UK, for example, it's uh, very typical. Um, they have a whole uh, industry of people who are not part of contractors um, firms, but are just estimators on their own. Um, and you find that in the United States as well, but it's it's not as it's not as uh, uh, big an industry. But it's a definitely a good idea. Um, I I would absolutely recommend it. Uh, it's just that it's hard to get that paid for, um, and so it doesn't usually fall into the general into the typical contracts. Um, the expectation is that the architect does it. Um, now, if the architect does it by um, uh, handing it over to someone else, that, that's fine, but you're, it's your role to produce it. The other part of what you just said was that it was doing it during the CD phase. What that's really doing is saying, okay, we, got, we get pretty good estimates at DD, we feel pretty confident, but before we actually send it out for a bid, like before we get to that spot, let's just check it and make sure, let's get somebody who's really on top, it can really go through all those unit numbers and make sure that we're on target so that you don't get surprised uh, when those things come back. If you do, if, you're, if, you're, if you say it's gonna be you know, $2 million and it comes back at four, uh, even if it comes back at 2.6 or something, you know, you're gonna redo all those drawings for free. Uh, so it's a big deal, you wanna be reasonably close. Now, nobody expects the architect's original estimates to be right on the money. It'd be ridiculous. There's too many up in the air issues that are up in the air. There's no way you could possibly know everything. Uh, so nobody expects that. But if you're way off, that is a completely reasonable complaint for a typ typical client, and they will absolutely complain and want you to redo the set in order to get it in line with their budget that you agreed to try to build the building for. Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. Thanks for bringing that one. So let's look on to the next one. Um, so this is a little ridiculous, um, but this is one of the things I, uh, you'll find these kinds of ridiculous questions on the exam all the time. Um, so, okay, number five, looking at the site plan below, or here, uh, where would you plant coniferous trees and where would you plant deciduous trees uh, in a temperate climate? So first thing to say is this is clearly about climate. Uh, because That's the only real information that you've been given. It's a temperate climate. 
so when we talk about trees and climate, uh, deciduous trees, uh, so deciduous trees, I'll give you a terrible little tree. Um, so there's my deciduous tree. Uh, we are definitely talking about something that's leafy, drops its leaves in, leaves in the winter, and is providing shade in the summer. So when you see a deciduous tree, uh, you are, we'll do decid, uh, you're talking summer is its big important time of uh, importance, and you're talking about shade. When you're talking about a coniferous tree, and I'm going to do a sort of joke of a Christmas tree here because you know, it doesn't always look exactly like that, but um, uh, you know, you get the idea. Um, we are definitely talking uh, talking about uh, winter. Um, Kniff. Yeah, this would be an I in there. Sorry. Um, we're talking about winter issues, and we're talking about wind. Right? If I'm looking at this deciduous tree and I have a wind blowing at me, that wind is going to go right through that tree. It's not going to be helpful at all from a wind standpoint. The coniferous trees, though, hold their needles all year, uh, and that wind is going to get blocked by that tree. That's a really great use of, those, of that type of tree. Um, but a coniferous tree in the summer, if you think about that high summer sun, so I've got this very high uh, summertime sun. I got that line of light coming down. I'm going to get a little tiny bit of shade right there. It's going to essentially give me no real usable shade. Whereas this nice big uh, deciduous tree is going to give me a much bigger shade footprint. Um, the other thing is it's going to give me shade in the summer when I want shade, and then the leaves are all going to go away in the winter when I actually want that solar gain. Uh, so uh, they have very different uses. Uh, now let's go back to the site itself. Uh, you can see there's a small building, there's a parking lot, um, there's a sidewalk and a street, there's an access uh, from the sidewalk and access from the parking lot, and then this is clearly a front door. Um, there's also something happening over here on the other side where there's a little bump out with a little patio next to it. So my guess is this is like a glassy bump out um, that has access to the exterior. And we know that uh, north is up because it, we have our little uh, north arrow there. And then importantly, we also have a little wind direction. So this is talking about the primary wind. And if they use the word wind, they're talking about the winter. If they use the word breeze, they're talking about the summer. And the issue here is wind, I'm always trying to block. Breeze, I'm always trying to accept. Um, so since it says wind, I'm assuming that it's a bad thing and we want to block it. So where would I put the coniferous trees to block the wind? Well, I'm trying to block wind uh, that is coming essentially like this. So there's a couple different ways that I could do that. Um, I could line up a bunch of uh, coniferous trees along the parking line. Uh, I could maybe line some up along the sidewalk. Um, and so I can find ways to block that wind uh, from becoming a problem for my building. Uh, and then the deciduous trees, I'm clearly talking about uh, shade for the deciduous trees. So let's think about, we're worried about it for the summer, as we said. Uh, so you'd think that the logical spot to put a deciduous tree would then be uh, right there on the south side of the building. So that uh, they'll cast a nice, uh, a nice shadow uh, onto our building and help keep our building nice and cool. 
Um, well, but if you actually start thinking about that a little bit, you realize that's actually not going to be terribly useful. Um, if there's my very high sun and here's my little tree uh, in, uh, on that summer day, that, that sun is going to be going, um, well, there, man. Uh, I seem to have lost my pen. There we go. It's not going to be going in this very long shadow line. It will be going in this very vertical line. If I put the trees just to the south, the, the sun will be so high that I'm only going to get uh, shadow right to there. It's not going to help me at all. So where would I put the trees to actually get a useful shade onto this building and onto my patio? If you start thinking about it, that high sun in the middle of the day when it's going to be the south side of the building, I'm really not going to be able to use the trees for that. But as that sun comes down in the evening over here on the southwest side, well, that's where I start getting those much longer shadows. So I start getting shadows that will go uh, onto my uh, patio, will go onto my building. So this idea that I can just, just on this simple little site plan with the question of temperate climate and coniferous and deciduous trees, I can actually come up with ways that I would plant those trees solely from what this question is asking me. Um, so these ones to the south, I'm going to say no, don't do those. You might do them for other reasons, but not for the reasons about the temperate climate. Uh, the coniferous trees along the parking or along the sidewalk make sense because they're blocking the wind. The deciduous trees uh, kind of making some sort of arc over here on the southwest uh, allow for those long shadows in that time late in the afternoon as that sun is starting to sink and you get those much, much longer lines. That's where you're going to get the, the usefulness of that shadow on that side. I can say the same thing on the southeast side um, uh, because it's, as the sun is coming up, it's also going to be that long shadow line. Uh, but clearly, if you're worried about the heat gain in the building, uh, I'm more worried about in the afternoon in the, to the evening as the day has warmed up all day than I am on the southeast side where I'm really talking about the right first thing in the morning as, those, as those, that sun is coming up and the, you're getting shade from that standpoint. So you could do it on the southeast side, but it seems to me sort of more straightforward. Coniferous trees in the location to block the wind over by the parking and the sidewalk. Deciduous trees to uh, provide shade at the southeast corner. Southwest corner, sorry. All right, let's move on to the next one. Number six. Programming includes all of the following except goals, preliminary designs, budgets, room and square footage estimates. So, okay, uh, here's the main thing. The reason I bring up this question, um, this is like a key thing that is very likely to show up in some way on your exams, probably in PPP, but potentially in some other spots as well. Um, do you think about goals when you're doing the programming? Absolutely. So that one's check. That's a good one. Uh, preliminary designs, that seems reasonable, but let's come back to that one. Budgets, yes, you absolutely think about budgets when you're doing the programming. How else would you be able to know how big a building you could build, right? You have to understand the costs of things relative to what you can get for that cost. Um, uh, otherwise, it's, there's really no point in, in starting the project. 
And one of the ways we understand the budgets is by understanding the square footage and how big things need to be, how many rooms we're talking about, can those rooms be, can I use the multi-purpose room and the cafeteria as the same room, do I have to have them be separate, like that's all stuff that would get worked out in the programming phase. Uh, so absolutely uh, those. So the answer has to be preliminary designs. That's the one that you're not supposed to be uh, including in the programming. Now this is kind of goofy because when you talk about to architects, essentially all architects want to design all the time. And so if the architect is involved in the programming, you're immediately starting to think, oh, wouldn't it be cool if, right? And you start going off, ah, we could have this thing and it could be big over here and little over here. And, uh, it's actually exactly the wrong thing to do under programming. Because what starts to happen is, if you're designing while you're programming, then you will find that you are uh, pre-selecting the goals that get to your design. You are pre-selecting the square footages and the room relationships that get to your design. You're, you're not being a free thinker about what the project could be, and therefore you're actually limiting the project if you do any designing during the, the programming phase. So uh, this, is, this is one of the reasons why uh, programming isn't always done by architects, because a lot of people don't trust the architects to do it because they know the architects will want to start designing right away, and that's not the point. And so that question will absolutely show up somewhere, somehow, uh, in this process. Hopefully that's pretty clear. Okay, I'm going to move on. Number seven. This is some uh, terminology stuff for the next couple ones, which I think are useful to know. Number seven, a mechanics lien is, is it an engineer's report? Is it a claim of percentage ownership of a site? Is it the waiver of rights? Is it a part of a typical payout request? Um, many of you have probably been part of a situation where you had to collect uh, waivers of lien uh, when you did the typical payouts, the G702s or something like that. Uh, and so you could imagine thinking that it might be part of D, that that could be part of what's going on, or the waiver of rights, a mechanics lien. Um, but uh, it, it's definitely, it's, it's not that. The weird answer here, the actual correct answer is that a mechanics lien is B. It is a claim of a percentage of ownership of a site or a project. Now that sounds really odd, but if you start thinking about it, this is what a mechanics lien is. So first of all, don't get confused by the word mechanics. It doesn't really have anything to do with mechanics. I don't know why it's called that. Uh, maybe one of you does and can let us know. Um, what a mechanics lien is, let's say you're a plumber on a job site and you do a bunch of work uh, and you get paid for part of it and then you do a bunch more work and you try to get the, the you invoice for the next payment and the GC doesn't pay you. But the GC doesn't tell anybody else that they haven't paid you. Uh, they just keep rolling along, but they've just decided they're gonna pocket the money that was gonna go to you, the plumber. Uh, so everything's rolling along, you're kind of moving through the process as the architect, the owner's moving through the process, you're paying out to the GC. The GC just isn't paying that, that plumber. Well, what can the plumber do? What's, what's open to them uh, as a way to make sure that they don't get screwed in this as a process? And the answer is they can claim a lien. So what this does is they can say, uh, I have done $100,000 worth of work on this project, on whatever the name of the project is, and I am therefore claiming ownership 
of $100,000 worth of this project because I have $100,000 of ownership in this because I put it in and I have not been paid back out. So that is the way, that, that is the process by which people uh, can make sure that all of the payments are happening and are flowing along. So you may have seen a situation where uh, as you're doing the payouts, uh, the GCs are also, as they turn around and pay the uh, subs, uh, the subs are providing them a waiver of lien and then the GC is handing those waiver of liens to the owner. And what that is is a process of saying that the owner is able to say, okay, I've paid the GC and the GC has paid all the subs and we know this because the sub has given the GC uh, this waiver of lien. I'm waiving my rights to put a mechanics lien on this project because I've been paid. I don't need to put a mechanics lien on this project. And you would do that at every payout and then there'd be a final waiver of lien at the end. So I'm using the, the, the subcontractors like plumber and the GC and all that, but it's actually for everybody. This could be for the architects, it could be for the consultants of the architects, uh, engineers or, or whomever. Uh, so all of these people uh, all have the right to claim a percentage of ownership of the site. Uh, and this is sort of the, the tool by which this is, is kind of uh, run in the sort of legal entities. Okay, let's move on to number eight. Looks like everybody got that one right too. Awesome. That's actually, usually people don't get that one right. So that's a, that's a good one to get if you got that one right. This one's actually a pretty simple one, um, but it gives us a chance to talk about a couple different issues. Uh, an easement is uh, a way to ensure the trucks can reach the loading dock. Is it a zoning issue? Is it a contractual relationship that rides on a deed? Is it a right-of-way for utilities? Most of us probably know easements as a right-of-way for utilities. Uh, that if you think about uh, an easement for power lines or an easement uh, uh, for uh, you know, plumbing uh, underground, uh, something along those lines, um, that is the sort of main way that most of us interact with the idea of an easement. But there are actually a lot of places that you could have an easement. So D is not the correct answer. Uh, you also might think that easements are really zoning issues, um, that uh, uh, they're kind of talked about in the same time you're looking at the surveys, you're looking at side setbacks and, and uh, uh, all sorts of kind of issues related to zoning and the site, uh, and easements are definitely part of that as a discussion. But it's not actually, an easement is not actually part of the zoning code. It's, it is a contractual relationship that rides on the deed. So the answer is C. And what that means is that there is some contract that has been made between uh, uh, two different entities, one of whom is the owner of a site. Um, and the contract says, all right, uh, you can put a driveway in that gets from the street to uh, your building um, because you don't have access to the street otherwise and I will provide this easement. I still own the land, but I'm providing you this easement. We have this contract, but I can't do that uh, and call it an easement if it's just a contract between you and I. Um, it has to be a contract that attaches to the deed. Otherwise, I could say, yes, pay me $50,000 for this easement to get this driveway to your building. Uh, and then I could immediately turn around and sell the land and the next owner would say, why would I want you driving through my site? And you'd have to redo it again. 
right? So it has to go with the deed. If there's a new buyer to the, to the land, they're buying the deed that comes with the easements that are attached to it. Uh, so it's a, a way of having a, uh, in, perpetu in perpetuity this, this idea of these sets of easements. Not all easements have to be uh, long-term. It could be a year-long easement or something along those lines, but it still is the idea that it's a contract between two entities, one of whom is the owner of the land and the other one is uh, needing access for something. Easements could be about a view easement. It could be about utilities. It could be about driveways. It could be about uh, any, any number of uh, different topics, um, but it has, the basic issue is that it has to do with that, uh, that contractual relationship. So can you think of any other terms that might show up uh, regarding um, this kind of way? It's sort of a zoning issue, but it's not technically part of the zoning code. It's this other uh, private issue. A couple of other terms that would be very much like this, that would absolutely likely to show up, would be something like a covenant. Uh, covenant is the idea that there's a private entity, like if you imagine a gated community or something. It doesn't have to be gated, but just imagine, it's easy to imagine it that way. Uh, there might be rules about I can't put in uh, a mobile home or I can't uh, use a flat roof. Maybe they want all the houses to kind of look similar or maybe it all has to be wood shakes or brick buildings or something like that. Those would be covenants that you are actually legally required to, to follow because when you bought the land there was a covenant writing with the deed of the land that sort of uh, added a whole set of private zoning issues. So they're not part of the zoning code, they're private contractual issues, but they're legal and uh, something you have to follow. So there's a bunch of terms like that that you should start to get to, to know and feel comfortable with. Easement is one. So it's not uh, a right away for utilities? It looks like that tripped up quite a few folks. Yeah, uh, it actually, an easement is absolutely a right away for utilities most of the time. It's just that that's not the best answer. Um, this is one of those little tricks that happens in the exam, which the NCARB folks love to say, uh, which is uh, you're not looking for the right answer, you're looking for the best answer. There might be two, even three right answers on any one question, uh, and the question is, which is the best answer? And so in reality, while we generally, you know, you see and think about rights of way for utilities all the time, you know, that's probably only 70% or something like that of the easements out there. There's still you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of other types of easements, and they all are a contractual relationship that rides on the deed. Okay, great. All right, let's look at nine. Another term you should absolutely know, uh, pro forma. A pro forma is a time-honored system for understanding, let's see, uh, A, the formal relationship, relationships to be generated in a design process, B, all of the pro bono aspects of a project. C, the estimated profits and losses for a development. D, the overall schedule of a project. Uh, so a pro forma, um, I'm just gonna kind of whip through these pretty fast. Um, a is definitely not it. Um, uh, while I kind of like the idea that a pro forma is about the pro bono aspects of a project, which would be the sort of uh, donated aspects of a project, um, uh, that's definitely not it. Uh, C is the correct answer. So what a pro forma is, uh, is let's say you're doing um, a, an apartment building and there's a, there's a developer who's building an apartment building. Um, what they're gonna do, in order to go and talk to, say, uh, a banker and say, I need $20 million to build this apartment building, before you, anybody's gonna give you that $20 million, uh, you need to be able to show that, okay, uh, I'm gonna have a bunch of money uh, that I'm going to make. So we're going to sell these 
We're going to you know, bring in money in a, a bunch of different ways, and that's going to add up to whatever this total number is. And then I'm going to have a bunch of money, uh, so let's call this a positive, um, that's going to cost. So I'm going to have construction costs. Um, I'm going to have site acquisition costs. Uh, I'm going to have lawyer's fees. I'm going to have uh, bank fees. Uh, so like if I'm going to borrow money, uh, there's a huge difference between borrowing money at, uh, you know, 15 years versus 30 years versus 50 years or at 3% uh, versus 5%. There's a lot of money there, right? So I have to really consider where that money gets played out. There's a whole bunch of, of different things that are going to cost money, the architect's fees among other them. So all the other fees and all those kinds of things, right? We're going to add up all those numbers and that's our set of costs. And the idea, presumably if it's a for-profit development, is that uh, the negative numbers, the cost numbers, are going to be lower than our positive numbers, right? That's all a performa is. It can be as simple as on the back of a napkin, you know, 10 numbers uh, added together and subtracted. Uh, it can also be something that's 50 pages long, depending on what's going on. One of the things you'll hear developers say all the time is that you'll be talking about an idea and you'll say, well, this would be really great. Um, I know you want these three bedroom units, but uh, you know, these would be really awesome two bedroom units because we'd have much bigger living rooms and we'd have this other thing and we could have a walk through, uh, a pass through in the kitchen. And oh, it's gonna be great as a two bedroom. And the developer will say, eh, it doesn't meet the performa. And what that means is they can get more money and they've already built the cost structure based on the three bedroom units. So a pro forma is the way that you kind of simplify how you put all this information together. It can be very complicated, but the base root of it is I've got some uh, numbers that I think are going to come in and I've got, uh, I'm going to sell these units for, or I'm going to rent them for, or uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, whatever, whatever my version of making money is uh, in this particular development. And then I have a bunch of costs that it's going to take to get to that. And I'm making sure that those balance out. Uh, a developer essentially has to have a business plan for any project. And a business plan is a, a series of uh, kind of reviews of like, is there a market for this? Is there a need for it? Do we have a lot of competition? Do we not have any competition? Uh, it's all of those kinds of issues. And one sort of the heart of that uh, business plan is going to be this pro forma because that's the part that allows you to understand not only does it meet the marketing, not only does it meet the needs and the, and the timeline and uh, all of those things, but that we actually will make money out of it. So it's one of those terms it's very likely to show up someplace uh, and you should uh, definitely feel comfortable with that. Looks like everyone is comfortable. They all got it. Awesome. All right. Number 10. Uh, while in initial discussions with a new client, you hear that they have had issues in the past with large overruns of costs. Um, that has caused them uh, problems with their funders. The funders are getting nervous because uh, they have uh, had these problems in the past. Uh, so therefore, you may want to suggest that they look into blank as a project delivery system. So project delivery system is a term you should absolutely know. 
Uh, when I say design, bid, build, where the architect is given the project to design a prod to design this building, and then at the end of that design, you hand it out to, to uh, general contractors and they bid on it. You have bidders who bid on it, and then uh, you and the owner make a decision over which bidder is going to become the actual GC on this project. And so a bidder is chosen, and then it goes into the building phase, design, bid, build. It takes a long time, but it has certain advantages. Um, that would be a project delivery system. That would be the way that you're going to get through the project. Another way you could imagine doing it is through something like design-build, uh, where uh, the architect and the contractor are actually one entity. They can be one entity in all sorts of different ways. It could be a contractor who hires an architect. It could be an architect who hires a, a contractor. It could be just people who like doing both. Um, design-build is a very different project delivery system. If I have a design build, it changes everything. It changes all the contracts. It changes all the relationships. Uh, instead of having um, the architect be sort of the agent of the owner, there's now this very different relationship of the architect to the owner because the architect is now allied with the construction process, not with the owner. So there's certain advantages to the owner and there's certain disadvantages to the owner. So this idea of project delivery, uh, it is a core part of project management of understanding what drawings you need to produce, of understanding what the relationships are, of understanding what contracts uh, you would sign. They all depend on, on what sort of project delivery system you're going to choose. Uh, so let's take a look at some of the things we have here. We have uh, a feasibility study. C is definitely not it. That is just a red herring to throw you off. Uh, the possible answers then are A, B, or D. A, construction management. Uh, B, design, bid, build, and D, fast track. So those are three different project delivery systems. Um, design, bid, build, as I just said, is that kind of longer one where you have the design, then you do the bid, and then there's the construction. The big advantages of design, bid, build uh, are that uh, I get to the, uh, get to the end process, uh, you know, I get to about here, uh, and when I've got that bid and I've got the, the GC about to start, and I actually have a pretty good understanding of that dollar value. Uh, up to that point, it may be a little loose uh, because you're counting on the architect to uh, do the bidding, not, uh, not a general contractor. Uh, fast track is this kind of great system that says, uh, okay, we're really all about speed because maybe school is going to start and we got to build it over the summer, or maybe you're building a stadium and the team is going to start playing in September or uh, the financing is going to be changing and so you just really want to get the project done right away or the site just costs a lot and you want to get it moving. So fast track is when speed is of the essence and in that case what you're doing is uh, the architects are providing a package that is let's say all about the uh, uh, foundation and then while uh, they finish that they hand that over and the contractors start building the foundation and then while, they're, while that's happening, the architect is now doing, let's say, the uh, steel, uh, uh, steel structural system. And they finish that package, and they hand that over to contractors, and the contractors start building that right away. Uh, and then uh, they hand over the shell and the, uh, all of the other things, uh, the sort of uh, basic floor plans and everything that fit into this as a system. And then they hand that over, and that starts getting built right away. So that these things are, are built in these uh, very fast stages where you are designing while it's being built. So fast track is a very unusual, very interesting way to do it. Uh, and it's kind of a 
crazy, great, fast, nutty system, but it's also absolutely a terrible way to control dollars. The dollars are always going to be higher uh, when you do fast track because there's just no way you can think of all the issues back when you started doing that, uh, that foundation package. You, you just can't think of every issue that would show up in one of the packages later on in the, in the process. So fast track, kind of fascinating. It has its place, uh, but it's definitely not a good place to control the dollars. Um, the main reason that you would do fast track is because you actually believe that, yes, I'm going to lose money on this as a project because I know there's going to be things we have to redo as we go along, but that that amount of money, let's say I lose $200,000 in this as a process, but maybe I save $500,000 because I've got the building up and running faster, right? So there's times when it actually is financially logical, but it's not about saving money on uh, overruns or anything like that. So then the only one left here is really between design, bid, build, and construction management. And construction management, the idea of construction management is that you actually have somebody from the ownership who comes in during SD and starts talking to the architects about the pricing. And so they're giving uh, dollar information uh, from the construction manager. They're essentially, not actually, but essentially an employee of the owner. To, to you, they're an employee of the owner. They actually don't have to be an actual employee. There could be lots of different ways that they run. But that you think of them, they're on the owner's team, if you will. So they come in and they give help give estimates at that point. And then they do it again at DD, right? So they're giving you money um, uh, through the construction manager. And then by the time you get done with the CDs, now they're actually uh, organizing all the subs um, and they're bringing all the subs in. But it's, uh, it's a different set of relationships then with the GC because they're bringing them in kind of uh, for the owner, if you will. Um, so if you were an owner that was really worried about past overruns, uh, I could totally imagine telling, uh, a potential, telling that potential client that they should really move to a construction manager system uh, because that's a, one of the givens of a construction manager is that you get a lot of early information and continuous information about what the costs are going to be. The big disadvantage is the big advantage of the design bid build is that I go through this big long process, but I also have bid it out to many different contractors. And so I actually do get a very clear idea of which is the low bidder. Uh, but as we said in one of the earlier questions, I also often get to a situation where I get to the end of the bidding and it's just all too expensive. And now we have to go back and start again and redo the drawings and go through the bid again. So while I have, have certain advantages of getting the low bid from the design bid build, there's a bunch of disadvantages as well. Um, so in this scenario, really the best answer is, uh, is to suggest that they do uh, construction management. And there you are. There's our, our 10 questions. Uh, it gives us sort of a good uh, starting point into the kinds of topics that uh, will show up on the PPP. There's a bunch of other things we could talk about, precedent issues, things like that. But this kind of gives you that sense of the types of things about practice management, about uh, the early stages of a project, about understanding uh, how the site impacts these decisions, about project delivery and, uh, and all of that. I think that gives you a pretty good sense of the sort of range that we're talking about. Okay, so um, at this point, we'll take any questions. Does anyone have any questions? If you do, you can use the um, GoToWebinar uh, question box. So we'll just take a second here and see if anyone has any questions.
uh, Michael is noting that uh, he thinks it really seems like there's a lot of overlap with CDNS uh, for this specific exam. Yeah, the, so I, I, I'm a little heavy on the CDNS on this, um, uh, but like I said early on, you have to think of it from the, the vantage point that you're looking at it. The reason that it's sort of heavy is that PPP focuses a lot on the early phases of a project. You're kind of gathering the information, you're getting ready to roll forward, you're uh, figuring out how the project, the project management, how it's going to play out, who, this, who the team is. Um, and when you, when you talk about that, there's a lot of sort of contract-esque contract uh, stuff uh, built into that. Um, but you're talking about it from not so much the legal standpoint, but from the practice management or the project management aspect. Um, the other thing from a practice management, we could have gone deep into, I sort of just left it with the pro forma, um, but we could have spent a lot of time talking about uh, billable hours and uh, kind of the, the different setup of, of um, uh, ways that you do billing and how you start to kind of think about how much time goes into SD versus goes into DD, those kinds of things. Um, those are all part of that milieu. Uh, but like I said, it's the, there's a lot of overlap, but you're looking at it from these different vantage points. Okay, uh, do we have any other questions? Doesn't look like it. Uh, maybe maybe we got all of them answered as we as we went along. So uh, so we'll go ahead and end it right there. Uh, you know, thank you, Mike, uh, and thanks to all of you who've tuned in and who submitted uh, your answers to the questions. Um, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, visit blackspectacles.com/podcast to register. Uh, you'll have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike for live feedback during the broadcast, just like today. Um, and to learn more about our AIA. ARE prep curriculum, go to blackspectacles.com. Uh, we'll uh, include, a note, uh, include a link in the show notes. Uh, and for those of you who are ready and, and want to go ahead and get busy preparing for the ARE, uh, you can use a coupon, uh, a 15% coupon off the first charge on any AIA ARE prep membership with code 527-1515-WEBINAR. That's 527-15-WEBINAR. Uh, and that'll expire on June 15th. Um, and of course, if you're already an AIA member, you can visit AIA.org slash ARE prep to get a 30% discount for the entire duration of your AIA ARE prep membership, not just the first charge. Um, and that also uh, expires on June 15th. Uh, and finally, uh, please hop over to iTunes right now and rate our podcast to let us know what you think and share any suggestions that you may have. Um, I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for listening.